there was this um, this one Sunday early uh, in the church plant when there was a kid with us, and he dropped a car, literally like in the back row there. And I was up here, and you could hear it. Like everyone was like, and then when it like landed up here, and you know I had to go give it to him. It was. I'm still waiting for that to happen again. Like some rolling object. It's the advantage of a slant, right? It's awesome. Okay. Uh, so my name's Tony. If we haven't met, it's good to it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, we're traveling through First Samuel. Now, last week I talked about First Samuel 24 and 26. David's on the run. He has these opportunities to. Uh, actually kill Saul, right? One is Saul goes to pee in a cave, and David happens to be hiding there already. Uh, The second one, he sneaks into Saul's camp and decides not to kill him. Instead, he takes his spear. Today, we're going to look at chapter 25, which is sandwiched between 24 and 26, okay? This is done intentionally. We didn't make a mistake. We're not like playing catch-up. Chapter 25, David is hiding in the wilderness, Uh, and in verses 2 and 3, we learn that David has recently moved to the wilderness of Paran, which puts him next to this wealthy landowner named Nabal. Now, Nabal is not the guy you want for your neighbor. A couple things to say here. Nabal, he's super rich. He has 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Interestingly, his name, Nabal, in Hebrew means fool, a little foreshadowing. If this isn't enough, the narrator says that he's like surly and mean in his business dealings. What's really interesting, though, is that Nabal's wife is this woman named Abigail, who's not only beautiful, she's super intelligent and wise. So the story begins with the fool and the wise woman. All right. So David is in the wilderness of Paran. He's next to Nabal and the sheep business. So you have 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, and they're kind of... If you, so imagine this, right? Imagine shepherding, and sometimes we think Ireland. There's just grass everywhere. That's not the wilderness of Paran in the Middle East. That's not how it works, right? There's like little pockets of grass in the wilderness. And if you're a shepherd, your literal job is to figure out how to get 4,000 animals fed on these little pockets of weeds tucked in the wilderness. So you have to take them through this massive area, go on these long walks. And what that means is Nabal's shepherds and David's army intersect. And as they intersect, David's men run into these shepherds and they talk shop. That's what people do. Hey, how's the business going? The sheep business. You know, how's the milk? Oh, good milk production, right? How's the meat? Because you slaughter them, right? How's the meat? Oh, super tasty. Oh, but these days we're actually shearing sheep. Oh, wool production, good. It's going well. Yeah, and they start talking about back at the home base, at the compound, they're shearing all these sheep. News gets back to David. David learns of the sheep shearing happening at Nabal's. And he gets an idea. And he says to his guys, hey guys, verse 5 through 8, 
Go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house. And peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Now, full disclosure, when I read this the first time, I just kind of skipped over it and went to the next section. Maybe you'd be tempted to do it, but you actually might miss a few things, which I realized when I read it through a second time. First, David says peace to Nabal three times. He says, on him, shalom on you, shalom on your house, shalom on everything you have. If you read the Bible, I, I'll hazard a guess, this is the most peace-filled blessing you will find in the entire Bible. Three times, shalom on you, your stuff, your house. On top of it, David tells the, guy, the guys to let Nabal know that his men did nothing to mess with the shepherds. This is what he says, we did them no harm. That's his case. Now, there's two ways to read this. Verse, sort of one way is like, you're the mafia. You, you kind of come up next to the guy, and there's this veiled threat. Hey, we're coming. It's feast day. We did your men no harm. Extortion, right? <laughs> Meaning, next time, we might not be so nice. Give us some food. Option one. Option two is, you know, David grew up as a shepherd. He knows what it's like to care for sheep, and maybe his men did them a real service. And in the ancient Near East, if your men protected shepherds and their sheep, you are actually due some sort of payment or reward. So maybe he's saying, hey man, we did you a solid. Return us the favor. Third, given that they are shearing sheep, David's request isn't all that hard for Nabal to fulfill. They would have had all this food available. They would have been feeding all these people, I mean, 4,000 animals. That's a lot of shearers, right? They have all these people. They have this feast. So it wouldn't have been that hard for Nabal to say, sure, no problem. Here you go. The request isn't all that convenient. David sends the 10 guys. He repeats what David says to Nabal. Now, likely didn't know that Nabal is a fool. And he's surly in his business dealings, as we know in the introduction. So, in verse 10, it doesn't surprise us that David, or Nabal says, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who have come from whom I do not know where? Now, it's pretty obvious that Nabal refuses the request, but you might not know that when he calls David son of Jesse, that's actually sort of a, a pejorative insult referring to David. Saul refers to David a number of times this way when he's like irritated at him. Also, this reference to servants and masters tells us that likely Nabal is on the side of Saul Man, David, you're not even, he's this guy, he doesn't even honor his master. 
I also want you to notice Nabal's repetitive use of my. My bread, my water, my meat. It's not God's stuff, it's mine. Which he clearly doesn't want to share. And you get this sense, right, as the ancient narrative is building, that the, narr- the tension is starting to build. What's going to happen now? David's men, right, they go back to him and they tell him what Nabal says. Now again, remember what we talked about last week. This story is sandwiched between David showing restraint, right? His men say, kill Saul. He's coming to pee in your cave. You should kill him. And what does he do? Doesn't do it. His conscience is pricked by cutting the corner of his robe. Then the next chapter, he shows restraint again. But this time, not so much. Verse 13, And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. A lot of sword strapping. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Before, Saul is literally trying to kill him, and he shows restraint. This time, a guy just insults him a little bit, and he's ready to basically massacre the entire household of Nabal, servants and master included. Notice, though, it says that David leaves 200 men to watch the baggage. Okay, we're not talking carry-ons here. This is important, right? So, keli is the word, and it can mean uh, bags, earthenware. That's where you store food. Pots, where you also store food, can mean armor. So, what he's basically saying is, David is leaving 200 men to watch a ton of food and stuff. This is not life or death for David. We're not talking food or die. David's just angry. He's angry that he has been, his offer, his thrice-repeated shalom has been cast aside. It might also help just to have a little bit of cultural anthropology here, um, because actually anger is always contextual and always cultural. So like in European culture, anger, from anger to aggression often goes from small to large. So you have a dispute with your neighbor over the fence. So what you say is, the first time you say, hey, you know, I'm just kind of curious, you know, just wondering, can we talk about the fence? If it doesn't go anywhere, step two is, hey, I'm pretty clear, pretty sure that you built that fence on my property. Anger is a little bit allowed, right? Step three, now you're like getting the courts involved, right? Step four, you're yelling at the anger or the, the neighbor, maybe punching them and then burning the fence, Okay. In the ancient Near East, you don't go from small to large when it comes to anger to aggression. That's just not how it works culturally. Every culture has their own expression of anger. So in the ancient Near East, you actually go from ignore to ignore to ignore to ignore to burn the fence down. Right? That's just how it works. That's an appropriate expression in that cultural environment. Notice, though, David doesn't do either. David doesn't ignore David doesn't go from small to large. David goes from insult to burn the fence down. But before David and his men arrive with swords drawn, word gets out. A servant in the house of Nabal knows where the brains are. 
not with Nabal, the fool, he goes to Abigail. He tells Abigail what's going on. And Abigail, in her wisdom, makes a decisive plan. Notice, though, she doesn't in anger just go back to Nabal and be like, you fool, what are you doing? She comes up with a plan. Verse 18, she grabs 200 loaves, two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, five seahs of parched grain, a hundred clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and lays them on a donkey. Clearly, they have food laying around. She tells the servant, run ahead and talk to David. Tell him I'm coming. She puts everything on the donkey and starts to walk. Imagine this just for a second. 400 men with swords are coming to your house. Sure, she sent a servant ahead. Great. But she has no idea whether that servant has actually talked to David. She has no idea whether that servant is dead on the ground while she is walking with her donkey. Imagine the utter courage it took. The dust cloud is in the, in the horizon. And rather than run, she keeps going towards the men set on violence. They get close. She gets on her knees and bows down in front of this charging group of men. She gets in the most vulnerable position possible. She knows that could be the last thing she ever does. And she says this. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Let's just stop there for one second. Is that what you would have said? Not me. I'd be like, I didn't do anything. It was him. On me alone be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. And you know the people on the, on the horses are like, <laughs> Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. This woman in this courage and wisdom is trying to protect all of the servants that are going to get massacred. This isn't just about Nabal insulting David. This is about David being insulted and now coming and massacring all of the men in the house. Right? And then she draws attention to the food, right? which was David's original request. She's like, look at this. Isn't this what you wanted? May your men enjoy it. But that isn't it. She also gives him all these reasons after showing him all the food for not killing anyone. Verse 26. I am here, David, because the Lord has restrained you 
from blood guilt. Subtext, David, God brought me here. David, I am at the dirt in your feet with this donkey loaded, preventing you from allowing your anger to turn into aggression, from your anger to turn into murder. God sent me, David. Verse 27, the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. Subtext, David, are you really fighting the right fight right now? Is this really God's battle you're fighting? Or is this just your anger expressing an aggression? Have you departed from the battle of the Lord to your own thing? There's probably an echo here, too, to David's speech when he goes to fight Goliath. When he goes to fight Goliath, he's like running into battle and he's shouting. He says this, right? I am fighting. I, David, am fighting. It might, sorry, it may look like, I'm going to start again. He's going to fight Goliath. And as he's going, he shouts back to the people of Israel. It may look like I am fighting, but really, this is God fighting his own battles. I think Abigail's riffing off that. I think that sermon became really public. It went viral. And he's saying, remember that, David? Remember when you fought Goliath, not because he insulted you, but because he insulted God? Verse 31, she says, My Lord, shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. Remember last chapter, David's conscience is pricked. Do you remember that? By cutting the corner of the robe of Saul's garment. Remember that? Now she's saying, hey David, Remember how just last chapter, remember all of Israel went with Saul, all of Israel hears David talk about this? Word gets out. She's like, do you want your conscience pricked? You cut a robe last time. Now you're about to slaughter a household. How do you think your conscience is going to feel? David, are you going to take matters into your own hands to satisfy your anger? Or are you going to trust that God has your back? Are you going to take salvation into your own hands or are you going to trust that God will deal with evil in the world? Pretty effective speech. With this woman at his feet, the donkey, the provisions, David replies, verse 32, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Yeah, you're right, Abigail. God sent you to me. Blessed be your discretion. Yeah, I was on the angry train. Thank God he sent you with some discretion. Blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt, from allowing my anger to turn into violence, from working salvation with my own hand, for trusting that I would be the one when I felt threatened, to take things into my own hands versus trusting you, God. For surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal such as one male. 
you're right, Abigail, I was going to murder them all. I love that when you actually sort of look at her statements and his, he is like consistently quoting her. Blood guilt, same word, right? Working salvation in my own hands. He's literally quoting her. She like had these great pithy lines and he's like, I'm going to pick that up. (laughs) And he says to her, as she's still in the ground, in the dirt, go up in peace to your home. See, I have obeyed your voice and granted your petition. She walks home. David goes his way with the donkey. (laughs) Danger averted. And there's a sense the story's over, right? Ah, man. Woo! But it keeps going. The fool is at it again. Nabal, totally oblivious to what has just happened, is throwing a rager at his house. Dude is so drunk, Abigail is like, I'm not even going to tell him until the morning. She wakes up in the morning. He's almost certainly hungover. She tells him, and the text says, his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. David hears this news and he says this, verse 39. Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hands of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. In modern parlance, whew, I'm grateful God took care of that guy. And I'm really glad that by God's grace, he sent Abigail because I was about to do something really, really wrong. Wow, God, thank you for doing that. That was a close one. Now, the story goes on, but I want to focus on sort of the story up to this point. I want to unpack a little bit. Okay, so we have this story. It's sandwiched between two other stories, and it's about David actually not restraining his anger. And it's starting to lead to aggression. And there's two things I want to talk about. The first is this connection between anger, aggression, and trust. So while none of us, at least I don't think any of us, uh, ever have the power to make decisions like this, like if someone insults us, to get our army and then go deal with them, very few of us have that ability. I think many of us can, make, can relate to uh, making poor decisions when we are angry. Who here has made a poor decision when they have been angry? Guarantee you every person who is married or has ever lived with a roommate or had a sibling. Now let's be clear, anger is an emotion, right? It's not a sin. It's what happens when our brain and our body tell us that there is a threat that we need to respond to. So the question is not whether we get angry. The question is, what do we do with it? And here's this quote. Uh, Viktor Frankl, he's an Austrian neurologist, psychologist, and Holocaust survivor. He says this, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power 
to choose our response. Ryan Frankel's getting at this gap between the emotion, let's say in this context, of anger and the behavior or response, aggression. Like we can do, we can choose how we respond when we get angry. Right, in this story, David, he's insulted, gets pretty ticked, and he decides heads are going to roll. Now, it's interesting, we don't get a lot of background on why David does this. Why couldn't David just ignore him? Like, why did David need to do this? We don't know. I was thinking about his life a little bit, and I was thinking, well, maybe it was, you know, just when you are living in this space where you're constantly threatened, and you are a person that is really good at fighting battles, it's possible you just become the kind of person because you're fighting all the time, that your first response is to fight. Totally possible, right? I think we could see that. It's also possible if you go back to chapter 16 when David is actually anointed king, if you look at the story leading up to it, Samuel comes to, the, to Jesse's house. Jesse brings out all of his sons to Samuel. All of them. Boom, boom, boom. Samuel's like, no, none of these. And Jesse says something like, oh, these are all of them. But there was one more, right? Oh, there is another one, but he's with the sheep. And you get this kind of feeling that David is living in a household where he is just really unseen, where his contribution isn't recognized. And you wonder if he just kind of lived with this. So that when his contribution with Nabal through the men isn't recognized again, David is a little more sensitive. David's like, this isn't going to happen again. Get your swords. Let's go. Now, I don't know. That's just sort of my little reconstruction. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. But we do know as David goes from zero to 60, from fine to furious, from angry to violent. Now, I think we can all agree, pretty clear, David going from anger to aggression Right, from a little bit pit, a little bit peeved. <laughs> Why are you laughing? A little bit peeved to a little bit angry to murderous. I think we can all agree that is not the biblical ideal. The question is what do we then do with our anger? Right, so depending on what you read, depending on the air you breathe in our cultural moment, you can go kind of one of two ways. One, influenced by Freud, there's the ventilationists, and they basically say, just get it out. If you're angry, yell. Just get it out. That's the best way to deal with your anger. And then if you grew up in the church, you probably heard something like, you should just never get angry. So now you have two options. Yell or stuff it. What do you do? Who's a stuffer? Who's a yeller? Ooh, got more yellers. All right. Now I know what I'm getting into. Okay. Biblically, though, right, the appropriate expression of anger is the goal. Not stuffing, not ventilating, not yelling. Proverbs 14.29 says, be slow to anger. 
If you go down to the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus is angry at the religious leaders. The word in Greek is orge, which actually works with the word ogre. Jesus is ogring at the religious leaders. And in our text today, we see, right, David is grateful for Abigail, not because she stopped him from being angry, but she stopped him from taking his anger out on other people. Aggression. So the question is, how do we become the kind of people who don't take our anger out on others? How do we not do what David did? I was thinking, like, maybe the first place to start, I think, for many of us, is actually just to become experts in our own anger. Because often we just don't really pay much attention. We're just like, I'm angry again! It's their fault! So I'd invite you over the next few weeks, become an expert in your own anger. Here are a couple things to pay attention to. One, pay attention to what is the trigger or what are the common triggers that get you angry? Are there certain people or places? You're like, yes, and it's their fault. Pay attention to that. What is the frequency of your anger? What is the intensity of it? Are we talking about a one or a ten? What's the duration? How long does it last when you get angry? What is the mode of expression that your anger tends to take? Do you get angry and then give people silent treatment? Or do you yell? Do you gossip behind their back? You don't say anything to them, but everyone else knows. Do you write angry posts on Facebook and social media? What's your expression? One of the gifts of being a pastor who gets to teach is that God gives me the gift of content. So this week, I had three opportunities to get angry, and I took them all. And um, the first one, man, I needed content, you know? And so um, the first one was yesterday morning, and I was so grumpy because I was tired. It was interesting. It had nothing to do with anything other than the fact I just did not sleep well. And my kids knew it. I was just grumpy. The other two were a little more specific. For me, uh, this, these two conversations both had to do with I had something I wanted to do or accomplish. And I was talking with this person and this person started asking questions about what I wanted to do. And I, internally, my brain told me, this person is a threat. They are standing in the way of you getting what you want. So then my brain said, heart, start pumping faster. Prepare for battle. Now, there's a long story here of why my body responded this way. Right? Because, and I, and I, you know, that, that's like a three-hour seminar. This is a you know, a few minutes left in a sermon. Essentially, I learned early on that maybe people don't have my best interest in mind. And if they don't, the only way to get my needs met is to fight. So angry, anger became a normal response to me whenever I felt like my goal was being threatened. All right, so then the question is, what do I do with that? What do we do when we go back and look at these instances? 
My hope is twofold. One, as we actually start to look at how our anger shapes us, we can actually make choices. Remember Viktor Frankl? Stimulus and response. How do we want to behave in the future? And my hope is we can actually take, as we're learning about our own anger responses, we can actually then go to Jesus and be like, God, why am I so threatened by this person? God, I want to take my refuge in you. I don't want to take, I don't want to take my future into my own hands and try and get my own goals. God, I want to trust that you will help me, that you will care for me. Right? If we get to know our own patterns of anger, it helps us not only affect our behaviors, but actually brings us into the presence of Jesus. And I think this is really important, because if you read the New Testament, you see time and time again, Paul writes to the church in Rome, never avenge yourself. If you're angry, don't take it out on other people. He writes, bless those who persecute you. Right, when we read this story from David, right, he sends Abigail to stop him in the midst of his sort of posture towards violence. And then what happens? He says, whew, thank God. And then after Nabal dies, he says, God is the one who avenged, not me. God is the one who took care of evil in the world. It didn't have to be me. I think there's this invitation in the scriptures to not allow our anger to go to aggression, but for our anger to lead us into a posture of trust that God is the one who avenges evil, not our angry tirades. And I guess I was thinking about this. Like, I don't want you to go away from this sermon thinking, I cannot set healthy relational boundaries. You can. And I don't want you going away from this sermon thinking you have to endure abusive relationships. You don't. The goal, though, I think from this story is to form us into the kind of people that don't take our anger out on others, but are a people who trust God even when we feel threatened. Anger is our body's way of saying, you feel threatened right now. And the question is, what do we do at that moment? Do we trust God or do we take matters into our own hands? So two things really practically. Are you willing to do the internal work of figuring out why you get angry and with whom? And then two, I want to invite you to say, what would it look like for you to trust that God will be your refuge when you encounter threats in life? What does it look like to trust him rather than take things into your own hands. Make sense? Now, the last thing I want to end with, uh, which I think is actually probably the most beautiful part of this entire story. When we read this story, what's clear is David did nothing I just said. David was totally unaware that he was going from anger to violence. David seems to have no sense that he is this angry guy about to slaughter people, and that's probably not a good deal. He has zero, he's done zero work on this. And yet, I think this story is a beautiful story about God's preventative grace. This is a story about a man 
whose anger gets the best of him. And God sends a woman, Abigail, to prevent him from doing the evil he was about to do. The truth is, on this side of eternity, we will never know all the times that God prevents us as broken, sinful beings from doing horrible stuff. Jesus teaches us in the New Testament, right? he teaches his disciples to pray, and he has these two lines, right? God, pray, every time you pray, say, God, Lord, keep us from temptation and deliver us from evil. We will have no idea how many times God has actually answered that prayer until we are sitting with Jesus in eternity and we realize, oh my gosh, if you hadn't shown up that day, look what I could have done. See, the truth is, we only know what does happen. We don't know what could have happened. We often think of God in terms of forgiveness, right? We messed up God, forgive us, and he does. But sometimes I think the Bible is telling us God actually prevents us from making really bad choices, from behaving like Nabal in his grace. He sends someone like Abigail to get in our way so that we don't make that mistake again. I was... uh, a number of years ago, I was early, I was probably in my late 20s, and I met with this really seasoned pastor who was this really, like, wise person, and um, I remember talking, I still remember this, this must have been 15 years ago. He's just sitting there, we're in Campbell um, at the prune yard, and he says to me, you know, this wise old guy, he says, the truth is, Tony, we're all capable of sin and doing really dumb things. All we need is weakness and opportunity to meet. That moment when you're feeling beat up, you're feeling run down, you feel tired, and you're kind of weak, and then an opportunity happens, and you make a really bad choice. And I think one of the things this text is telling us is, yeah, that's true of us, and sometimes God removes those opportunities. That's part of his grace and kindness to us. I was thinking about it this week. Sometimes I just sit and imagine. I don't know if you do this. (laughs) Maybe I'm just very aware of my own sin. But (laughs) I sort of imagine what my life would have been like if Jesus hadn't intervened. Two stories came to mind. You know, one, I just encountered Jesus in college. It was this profound pivot in my life. But I was still living out of the same patterns that I had lived before, right? <laughs> I wasn't perfected having encountered Jesus. And I remember I was on the second story of Boswell Dorm. And uh, I was a part of InterVarsity, it's a campus fellowship, and this woman named Sarah Reggio was one of our staff. Came up to second story of Boswell Dorm and started chatting with me. And she you know, said this comment that's lived with me, I don't know, 20 years. She's like, Tony, you know, I want to give you a little feedback. You know that's not going to go well when someone says you that. Tony, you're generally happy or angry with people. It was interesting 
that was just my family culture. That's just, that's the only emotions I was ever allowed to have. Generally happy or angry. But I had no idea that I was taking out my anger on people in our fellowship. I had no idea the consequences of my reality on others. But Sarah Reggio, I feel like, was an Abigail for me. That day, it sort of became this pivot where it started to shift, prevented me in God's grace from staying on that avenue. When I was like creating a fair amount of relational, I don't know, wreckage. The other story that comes to mind, very different and later on, I was up in Washington and, I, you know, sometimes we think, or I don't know, I don't think, maybe you do, that pastors have their things together. Uh, and I uh, was in Washington and the truth is I was pretty cynical and grumpy. And I remember there was this staff retreat we were supposed to go to. And I was going to the staff retreat, but I was leaking all over the place. I was just kind of like complaining and like, why do we have to do this? You know, in sort of my grumpy voice. And I think it was affecting people, right? Because you think, oh, I'm just a realist. But really, you're cynical and you're just actually pulling everyone else down. That was me. And it was this moment in worship where everyone else is sort of, we're sitting in a circle, everyone else is singing joyfully, and I'm like, you know. And in this moment, the Holy Spirit just shows up. I had zero desire to be there. I was not worshiping. I would have rather gone home. And in this moment, God shows up. And I literally almost fall out of my chair. And I, everyone else is sitting there singing. I am weeping on the floor, hardly able to sing. And God just did this thing in my heart that changed the trajectory of my pastoral ministry and the way I interacted in so many different ways. But those are two stories that came to mind of God's preventative grace in my life. I was going this way. God shows up or sends someone, now I'm going this way. I just wonder this week if you took some time to just look at your story and went back and thought about all the times that Jesus either intervened through another person or personally to get you off of a certain path and put you on another one. Can you think of those times and those moments? In my experience, when I do that, it brings me into this place of worship. This place, just the bigness and the goodness of God. And sure, do your personal work. Do the stuff you need to do, right? Pay attention to your anger. But in the end, our lives are so much more shaped by God's preventative grace than I think we could ever imagine. I want to invite the worship team up. I just want you to just maybe sit in that for a second. Maybe there's a moment in your story that comes to mind when God intervened. I just invite you in this space just to allow that sense of gratefulness to rise within your bodies and just turn back to Jesus and say thank you. How many times has God rescued us how many times has God redirected us? And we just kind of kept going, you know. Jesus, in this space, we just say thank you. We thank you that in the end, it is not about our efforts. 
It is not about our goodness. It is not about our self-control. It is not about our ability to figure out our anger or why it's happening. It all comes down to your grace. Choosing us. It's about your grace coming into our lives, interrupting the paths that we pick that are not only often harmful for us, but others, and God, rescuing us. God, would you bring those moments to mind that we might be a people that worships you today. It's the God who is big and great. Because the spiritual life, Jesus, was never about us. It was never about our performance. It was never about our ability to rock it. It has always been about you. It has always been about your rescue of us. May we just fall into your arms in a place of worship this morning. Just as you rescued David through the person of Abigail, you are often rescuing us when we don't even know it. So church, let's stand and worship the God of the universe. Thank you.